Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church. City Church is a community of worshippers and mission. We exist to catalyze a gospel-centered movement that renews Lagos spiritually, socially, and culturally. You can find out more about us at www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos. Good morning, church. Our Bible reading today will be taken from the book of Revelations, chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. Once I am done reading, I will end by saying, this is the word of the Lord. Please do respond by saying, thanks be to God. Revelations, chapter 2, 1 to 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus writes, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have preserved and endured hardship for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things that you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears let them hear what the spirit says to the church to the one who is victorious i will give the right to eat from the tree of life which is in the paradise of god this is the word of the lord thanks be to god so welcome again and now i want to bring the word to you thank you wura for reading uh the the bible for us I just want to ask for the presence of God as we go into this um, sermon. Heavenly Father, we've come to you now to hear from you. We thank you for hearing, uh, for speaking to us through the reading of your word. But now we need you, oh God, for the exposition of your word. We need you to not just make our minds clearer, Holy Spirit. We need you to minister to our hearts. We need you to put the light upon Jesus Christ and we need you to help us. And so we're asking for an encounter with you, the living God today. We ask, oh God, that you will minister to us. Make our hearts, oh God, open to receive your word. Let my own mouth, oh God, be um, set apart for you, oh God, to speak as your oracle. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A few years ago, I was um, about completing my master's and I got to the point where I was going to do a, a thesis. And the, the thing I chose was a new field. It wasn't one, it was one that was still being developed in um, well, the, the topic I chose was within a field within my, uh, my discipline. And so, you know, I was reading a lot, but there were two principal people who had started this whole thing. One was a guy in Canada, and then there was a lady that was in Imperial College in London. So I read, I did the thesis, I thought it was good. I thought I deserved the distinction, which was what I really wanted. Fast forward, as we're getting towards the end of the program, my supervisor said he wants to see me a particular day. So I go, except my supervisor wasn't there. Another lecturer took me to a room, and uh, in that room, I met the external examiner. So what happens is for each master's class, everybody that submitted their thesis, they get an external examiner to 
look at the grades that were given so that it's not seen to be partial. So the person is not meant to be part of your school. But lo and behold, you know who the external examiner was? It was the lady that um, I said was one of the leading people in the field who had read a lot of our papers and I cited her a lot of times. And she called me because she was quite interested in what I was doing and she wanted to ask certain questions. I was petrified. I, in fact, I was so nervous. I'm sure I said a lot of nonsense because I wanted the distinction so bad. Guess what happened? I was two points off the distinction because of my thesis. And I know for some of us, that is what assessment looks like, right? It is nerve-wracking because of the thing we want to get at the end of the assessment. Maybe it's a, your marriage counseling or maybe it's um, a certification for an exam that you're doing. You know, where it's nerve-wracking because of the thing we want to get out of it, but also because sometimes we're the person that is assessing us. And maybe you become like me. What do you do? You complain and you try and justify why you are unfairly treated. Rarely do we actually do or get the best out of an assessment. What's the best of the assessment? Accept what it says about you and use that to develop and change for the better. In other words, most assessments are good for us if we will use it for why it was designed. Now, in the passage that was read to us, um, it's been is the first of what has been dubbed the seven letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, between chapters 2 and chapter 3, Jesus, the resurrected and exalted and enthroned Jesus, is writing to seven churches, he's writing letters to the angels of seven churches in a region called Asia Minor. He's doing that through a vision that was given to the apostle John. All right, And in those, let in those letters, basically Jesus gives an assessment of those churches to the angel. The angel is really the messenger or the leader in the church. So he gives an assessment of the church. He gives them instructions for how they can improve. And he gives them a reward for the one who is victorious, the one who overcomes. And so we come to the letter in Ephesus. And Ephesus was the, um, the largest city in Asia Minor. It was on a coast. It was the cultural and commercial capital of the whole region of Asia Minor. In other words, Ephesus was the Lagos of Asia Minor. And what Jesus does to this church in his assessment of them, he's assessing them based on the condition of their relationship with God. Jesus has certain things that he wants to tell them about that, but he also has certain things he's going to tell them in order to improve that relationship. Now, that is the reason that we have set up this series. I don't know why you've tuned in, but I guess some of us heard about this series and thought, you know what, my relationship with God is not in the best place. You know what, I'd like to kickstart my relationship with God. Or maybe some of you would say, I don't even have one, but I think I'm being pulled towards this. So whether you've never had a relationship with God or you need to rekindle your relationship with God, this series is for you. We are not here to condemn or judge. What we are here to do is we want to see people who have never had a relationship with God have that relationship kindled for the first time. It's to see people who have had a relationship with God but is going sour to have it rekindled again. It's not about condemnation but it's about assessment and rejuvenation being, uh, through being equipped with the right things. And so that's why we have called the first of this sermon, of this series, Recovering Your Love for God. 
I hope that it will bless you as much as I hope the entire series, five-part series, will also bless you. So let's look at this sermon in three parts. I'm sure no prizes for what those three parts are going to be. The first is Jesus' assessment of you. The second is Jesus' instruction to you. And the third is Jesus' reward for you. Jesus' assessment of you, Jesus' instruction to you, and Jesus' reward for you. So let's start with it. Now, if you open in verse 1, it says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. You're like, what kind of picture is that? Well, it's a fascinating picture that is first introduced to us in chapter 1, verses 12 to 13. 16 and 20. John sees somebody um, with, um, uh, that is walking through, uh, well, as I, he says, and when I turned, I saw seven gold lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. In his right hand, he had the seven, he held the seven, he held seven stars, as we see here. But in verse 20, it interprets what that is. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels to the seven churches of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. You know what Jesus is saying with this? If he holds the seven stars in his hands, right, the leaders of the church, he holds them in their hands. He's basically saying Jesus has the supreme authority in the churches. And he's walking through the lampstands, that is, he's walking through the churches because he has the authority. He has the authority, because he, he's given authority over the churches, he has the authority to also assess them. And so he was walking through them and giving them assessment of themselves, just like Jesus is walking through City Church right now. And when I say through City Church, I'm talking about you, leader in City Church, you, member of City Church, you, regular attendee, you, occasional attendee, you, visitor, and us as a whole city church, Jesus is walking through right now. And as he's walking through, what is he going to see? What is he going to say about you? Well, as he walked through Ephesus, he saw five good things to commend about them. He said that the people in Ephesus, and you can see this in verses 2, uh, 3, and 6, but he basically says they are hardworking. He says that they are persevering. They are just they are discerning and they are zealous. They are hardworking, they are persevering, they are just, they are discerning and they are zealous. They are hardworking. Notice he says, I know your deeds, your hard work. In other words, these were not people who saw their Christian life as a long vacation until Jesus Christ returns or until they die. Neither were these people that were lazy in ministry. They did not say, well, when it comes to ministry, I can give God whatever uh, uh, I, I want because of, at least I'm not being paid for it. No, they, they pursued excellence in doing the things of God. They were hardworking, but they were also persevering. He said, your perseverance, in verse 3, he says, you have persevered and endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. These were people, despite the opposition, they still stuck with God. In fact, these people, have, you know, we just treated the book of 1 Peter uh, not too long ago, and it's all about Christian suffering. Peter will have been proud of these people. But also they were just. In other words, the welcoming nature of the church did not mean that they tolerated wickedness or injustice. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people. 
So they saw they were good at identifying what was wicked and unjust, and they confronted it. But also they were discerning. That is, they were so steeped in truth, doctrine, theology, that they could sniff false teaching or false teachers. You have tested those who claim to be apostles, but are not. Some people are unable to test properly those who have gifts, but, all, but also um, perpetuate that which is false. But these people could do that. And then finally, the kinds of practices that came out of false teaching, they were zealously against. In verse 6, it says that you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans. Later in one of the churches, it talks about the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Here, it talks about the practices of the Nicolaitans. It was a false teaching, and there were practices that came out of it. Notice what he says. He says that they hate those practices. Why? Because Jesus himself says, I hate them. So they were zealous. So these five things were commendable about this church. And Jesus shows us how to counsel here. He basically says, you have to admit it. He acknowledges it because they were truly commendable. But yet after that, Jesus said something. He said, I still have something against you. What was it he had against them? Verse 4, he said, you have forsaken the love you had at first. In other translations, it would say that you've forsaken your first love. You see, this conveying to us both an issue of chronology and an issue of priority. Chronology in the sense that they once had a certain love they no longer have. They had it before, they no longer have it now, chronology. But priority is that that love they had, they had it at a certain position and they no longer have it at that position. So let's get into those two things because some of us may be dealing with this. Now, what I want you to understand about that phrase, first love, is going to be embedded in those two words. Let's take the first word, love. Notice he did not say you have forsaken your first thoughts. Neither did he say you have forsaken your first feelings. He says you've forsaken your first love. It's all about love because at the heart of what we feel and at the heart of what we think is what we love. People who love knowledge like to read and think. People who love feelings like to sing and shout. Why does God emphasize love? Because you see, love precedes our emotions. It precedes the things we do our will. It precedes our thinking and it controls them. And the reason why God emphasizes love is really because the God in whose image we are created, it says he is love. And so if we are created in his image, love is our fundamental human uh, controlling emotion, well, not even emotion, our controlling center. We love from our heart. And then because of what we love, we think in a certain way, we do in a certain way, we feel in a certain way. And God is saying, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 22, verse 36, when it's asked, what is the greatest commandment of all the commandments of the law? He said, it is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength love. And the problem here with these guys is that in Ephesus, sadly, they had replaced loving God with loving things about God. And this can really get very, very murky. If you take a relationship with, within spouses, it is possible to be on speaking terms with your spouse. It's, it's possible for you to even be having sex with your spouse and you know something is off. Something is just off. 
It is possible for you to be contemplative together, possible for you to be compliant, possible for you guys to be emotional, and yet you say, we lack chemistry. There is something that is missing. And what Jesus is saying is that it is possible, very possible, to be a Christian or to be a church that is, uh, that is hardworking, that is uh, 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 persevering, just, discerning, and zealous, and yet lack intimacy with God. That was the Ephesian problem. Is that your problem too? Because it is possible for you to work for God without walking with Him. It is possible for you to experience things about God without experiencing Him. Oh yes, it is very possible for you to think the truths, to think about truths of God without thinking his thoughts alongside him. Is that you? Is that you? And then you see, there's a second issue with this, and it has to do with the word first. Now, I got this illustration from um, a pastor called Tony Evans, dear man, he says this, and it's something like this. You know, we all know, that God is massive, God can do extraordinary things, God can do impossible things. But do you know there are some things that God cannot do? Like literally, God cannot do something. God cannot lie. It's impossible for God to lie. Do you know that God cannot stop existing? Do you know that God cannot stop being God? There are things God cannot do. Oh, here's one more. That th thing that God cannot do. You know what it is? God cannot be second. God cannot be second. In the beginning, God. God has always been first. God cannot be second. And anytime you put something ahead of God, you've begun to engage in what we call idolatry. You see, in the city of Ephesus, they had this magnificent temple to the goddess Artemis, right? It was a huge, massive structure. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was a city steeped in idolatry. And the goddess of Artemis was a goddess of fertility. She was the goddess of commerce. And many of us are like that in Lagos, isn't it? You see, because our big goddess is the god, or god is the god of progress. And so it's not so much that many of us don't love God, it's that we don't love God first. We place God second. We say, yes, there's God, but this particular thing. Many of us express this, for instance, in our career, right? God gives you a job. You've been asking God for a job. God gives you a successful business. And because of that, you place God second to it. You justify not having the kind of time you should have for God based on the blessing that God gave to you. Some of us even would express it in a noble way. Like, ha, ah, I'm a business owner. If I, if I had time, uh, if, I, if I had time like this, you know, maybe some of these people will lose their jobs. I'm, I'm, I'm slaving myself for these people, for these people, because God will not want me to make these people deserted. Let's be careful. Let's be very careful. The God who blessed us with the things that we have, never blessed us with those things so that those things can then take his place. Some of us do it with our kids. Some of us do it with uh, our, our individual autonomy. Yes, I love to worship God. Yes, I like to do things in church. But once somebody talks to you about your sex life, and uh, now this is, this is now coming too far. 
What's what are you talking about? Or somebody tells you, this is how to use your money as a Christian. Now it's too far. You know what? You love God, but your main God is your individual autonomy. I'm very sad with the with the like we see with the Ephesians. Some of us, we idolize theology. We idolize ministry. Listen, anytime you place something ahead of God and make God second, your intimacy with God will start to dissipate until it fizzles out. And Jesus then says in verse six of the verse five, the latter part of verse five, that you are in a difficult and dangerous place. He says, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from his place. In other words, he's saying your legitimacy will be taken away. Legitimacy of your standing with God, whether individually or corporately, will be taken away. You may still be succeeding. It is very possible to have a well-structured church that is doing so many things, and it says the lampstand has been taken away. It is very possible as a Christian to be doing so many things for God. People are, you know, lauding all your achievements for God. You're a wonderful this, you're a wonderful that. At your birthday, they shower you with encomiums and talk about how strong a Christian you are, and yet you never had the true intimacy with God. Jesus says you are in a very bad place. So what can we then do to remedy this? Well, Jesus then gives instructions on how to improve our relationship. That takes me to my second point. And so the second point is Jesus' instruction to you. Somebody, some of you are already convicted. You're already saying, Femi, this is me. You know, I like being strategic in my thinking about how to serve God. I like serving God. I like doing all of these things for God. But the truth is that I cannot remember the last time I actually encountered God in a place of singing, in a place of worship. I can't remember. Some of you are saying, I don't even know whether I really ever had that. Some of you are saying, I can't say that I actively have a conscious relationship with God. I'm beginning to doubt that it is true. Maybe it is that we have to read the Bible, see it, and then follow. Can I say to you, please, don't mistake Christianity for any other religion. God, God, God gave us his word. The Bible is the word of God. Inherently, um, infallibly, it tells us about God. But God preceded the Bible. There is God and there is the Bible. If you have a biography of Winston Churchill today, you don't say that that is Winston Churchill. It tells you about Winston Churchill. You can't have a relationship with Winston Churchill just by reading the book. You would have a relationship with an imagination of Winston Churchill. And the difference between Winston Churchill and God is that Winston Churchill is dead. God is very much alive. God is a being and he's three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Please, let me tell you, he wants to have a relationship with you. Of course, if you don't use the Bible, then it is your own imagination about what God is. But as you keep being steeped in truth, listen, God wants to have a relationship with you. That is why Father, Son, Spirit, we use familial terms. He is a God. He's a relational God in the Trinity from all eternity. He has been a relational God. And so as he's trying to uh, the people that he has created in his image, he wants to have a relationship with them. For you to do this, though, in Jesus' instruction to us, you have to fight. In verse 7, he says, to the one who is victorious, to the one who overcomes. It's a fight to get intimacy with God. Now, Jesus gives us a threefold instruction in verse 5. He says this, for you to have an intimate relationship with God, to recover it, you need to remember, you need to repent, and you need to reconnect. 
Remember, repent, reconnect. Let's start with the first one. Remember, he says, consider how far you have fallen. You have to do an honest self-examination. In other words, Jesus has given you his verdict. The question is, will you embrace it? You know, one of the things I have seen in the counseling booth over a number of years is the incredible lengths. One of the things I've noticed about us is the incredible lengths we take to deceive and to lie to ourselves. And a worst form of that is when we start to justify our condition and make it seem like it's okay. We justify it with statements like, about our relationship with God, I'm working on it. I'm working on it. You really are not doing anything, but you just use that to deflect. I'm working on it. Or, of course, my relationship with God can improve like everybody else. Or, listen, being emotional in worship is not always about raising up your hand or dancing. I can put my hand in my pocket and be still and I'm, I'm emotional. Who are you to tell me that I'm not emotional? Or, prayer is not about the length. It's not about the length of, of time you spend. Prayer is all about the words. I can pray and connect with God for two minutes. I don't have to do it for two hours. Stop it. Stop it. Admit it. You have fallen. The people who are trying to reach you and are trying to lovingly correct you are correct. You are the one who is being deceived. Stop saying, just pray for me. God can reach me anywhere. Admit that you have a problem. Jesus is now talking to you. He's saying that you have a problem. Jesus is saying, me and you, me and you. It's no longer there. We no longer have the chemistry. We were once hot. And because we were once hurt, even in the midst of all the things you used to go through, it was soothing your heart. You had my peace. You had my confirmation. You had my affirmation. But right now, it's gone. Denying it won't help you. The first step is for you to admit it. Remember where you have fallen from. Or for some of you, it's not where you have fallen from. It's where you've always been. Admit it is not going well. And if you do admit it, it leads to the second thing where it then says well, you should do what? You should repent. Repent, he says. You see, whilst remembering is about examining what happened in the past, repenting is about how you feel about it and what you're going to do about it. How do you feel about that assessment? What are you going to do about it? You see, because the only thing the Bible tells us to repent about is sin. It's sin. This issue is a sin issue. In other words, Jesus is not trying to be our life coach. Jesus is not trying to give you advice on life enhancement. Jesus is not trying to give you instruction on how to quit a bad habit. Jesus is trying to tell you the condition that you're in is a sinful condition. It is wrong. Do you feel that way about it? Do you just think it's something I need to get on with, I'll eventually improve, you know, I'm actually getting better? Jesus is saying, no, you are in an idolatrous situation. Your lack of intimacy is showing you the idolatry in your heart. Change. Now, if you are truly repentant, you will lament about your condition. You will mourn for your condition. It's not simply a change of mind. In other words, it's a broken heart that comes to God that then asks for forgiveness. It is a broken heart and a contrite spirit that he says he will not despise. Mourn the situation. And after you've mourned your condition, you know what you need to do. What will you do about it? What have you determined in your mind is what you now want and what you are going to do. If you say, this is who I am, what do you want? Do you then want intimacy with God? 
Because if you do, then you start to consider, what do I need to do? I'm asking you. What do you really want it? Don't lie. Don't justify yourself. Don't say this thing doesn't exist. Neither should you say, I am not in that condition. Jesus is walking. He's walking in the church right now. He's talking to you. He's walking in your heart. He's saying it wasn't that way. But I want you to fight. And I'm giving you the instructions on how to fight so that we can do this thing. Do you want it? Do you want him? But if you do, if you are mourning the condition you are in, and you are saying, now I want you, God. Now I want you. I want you to give yourself to me. As you are praying your heart, as you are doing that, then you should start asking yourself, what do I want to do about it? And that, that takes me to the next part, which is reconnect. Because after you've considered how, um, how far you fall, where you've fallen from, and you repent, he says, do the things you did at first. You see, as you are changing your mind, he's saying you complete it by doing stuff. There is stuff to do. Do not just diagnose, he's saying implement. Do not just diagnose, implement. Now, I'm not going to go through detail in detail on what we're going to, um, some of those practices. In fact, that's why the other sermons exist. But write this down. No space and time for God. No presence of God. No presence of God, no intimacy with God. Say it again. No space and time for God, no presence of God. No presence of God, no intimacy with God. You see, the bulk of our problem is that we don't create time and space for God. That's just the truth. Let me tell you something. You know, we're in Lagos, like Ephesus, people are very busy some of us, you know, you look at calendars. When we call, can you take this? Uh, where can we meet? Let me get back to you. I'll have to check my calendar. I'm not abusing you. Everybody, people that know me know that's how I live my life, right? I'll get back to you, right? Because there's so much to do. But let me tell you something. I've counseled people and I've spoken to people and I know people who have committed adultery. Some of these people are the most busy people you can ever see in your life. The most busy people you've ever seen in your life. Like, they have multiple things that they are doing. And yet, somehow, they always created time. You know why? Because we always create time for the things that we love. It is a fallacy that is as though I wait for the time, as though the time will fall on my lap. I wait for the time and space for God. We don't wait for time for the things that we love. Neither do we just, ah, all of a sudden, eh, I've discovered, I have time. We don't discover time for the things we love. What do we do? We create it. That is, in the midst of where it doesn't exist, we create it. Why? Because we love it. And so if you truly love God, if you are seeking this intimacy with God, you will not say, I am too busy for it. The reformer Martin Luther, they said, Dr. Martin, with all the things that you are doing, how do you find time to pray? With all your business, how do you find time to pray? He said, I am too busy not to pray. Some say, I am too busy to pray. He says, I am too busy not to pray. I can guarantee you this. If you intentionally create space and time for God, he will fill it. There's stuff to do. Now, the, the things to do, don't, don't mistake it. The things to do in verse 2, 
Those five things, Jesus is saying they are commendable, but they also have some problems. They can justify and somehow mask your, ba- your, your bad relationship with God. Because notice those five things, they are hard, the, the fact that they were hardworking, the fact that they, 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 they persevered, that they were just, that they were discerning, and that they were zealous, all of those things were horizontal. They were things they did here. It didn't really have much to do with, you couldn't assess it here. So what he's saying now is do the things you did at first. The things that proved and enabled a deeper intimacy with God. That is, he's saying the works that I want you to do here should flow out of your intimate relationship with God. That is, they prove that this person has been with God. They prove that this person, the way they behave, just like the early Christians said, they prove that they, they it, it showed that they had been with Jesus. It proves that this person has been with God. They flow out of it. But actually, those things, those works that flow out of it are the things that also enable you to have a greater relationship with God. I'm not going to go into details now, but I have prayed and I know right now, some of you, the Holy Spirit is telling you what you need to do. Please listen. Don't quench the Holy Spirit. Don't say, how will I do it? Don't start to give an excuse right now. Listen. Stop. Pause. He's telling you exactly what you need to do. What you need to do to enable this relationship. He's telling you to stop some things and he's telling you what you need to do. Will you listen to him? For some of you, he's giving you innovative steps right now because No one can fully tell you exactly all you need to do because your situation is unique. But he's giving you innovative steps. Stop. Embrace. Write it down. Now. Because God that is speaking to you right now, can you see how much he loves you? He wants you to come closer to him. Don't resist. Because I can guarantee you, If you create the time and the space for God and you put in the right practices there, he will fill it with his presence. You will grow in intimacy with him. And if you do that, I can promise you also there are rewards for that. That takes me to my third point. And so this third point is Jesus' reward for you. Now, some of us who are not Christians are looking at this or maybe some kind of Christian and say, you know what, this is all mushy stuff. This is just all mushy stuff. But please, Can I stop you in your tracks and saying this relationship, relational issue that you just call it mushy stuff. One of the things I have noticed and I've seen, I've read, is that people who in their lives have rarely sought for intimacy with anyone, people who have rarely sought for intimacy with anyone, most often than not, are lonely, depressed, or at the extreme, they are sociopaths. It doesn't work. Trying to say, I live my life, I just, you know, go by principles, I don't get emotional, what? Nah. And so how much more, if I don't do it with people, how much more do I want to do it with God, this whole intimacy thing? No, it often leads to loneliness, depression, and many people are sociopaths. But let me dig further into why I'm saying this relationship matters. Let me illustrate with relationships, human relationships. Some of us know, because you have this in your life, you know what a bad relationship is, don't you? Like when you are in a bad relationship with someone, it is the relationships that take from you. They just take. Not just, fi- they take finances from you, they take time, they take emotions from you. No, you don't say, hey, but don't all relationships do that? Mm, yes, the difference is that these ones take, they never give anything back. 
I'm not just talking about they don't give you money back or they don't give you time back or they don't give you laughter back. I'm saying that, you know, there are some relationships. Maybe you are way older than the person. Maybe you are there to help the person. But when you help the person, you see the transformation of the impact, the transformation of the input you made, the impact that you made in that person's life. That impact gives you joy. That's how the person gives you back. That's still a good relationship. But I'm talking about relationships where they just keep taking, taking, taking. You don't see any impact. You don't get anything from them. Those relationships take from you. In other words, they take life from you. And they give nothing back. They don't replenish. In other words, they are almost, it's almost like those relationships are killing you. Don't have too many of those relationships. Though. But we also know good relationships. Good relationships are the ones that give back. I have some of those relationships in my life. Enriching relationships. People who enrich my life. Did you get that? They enrich. They make my life richer. They make, they add to my life. And the reason they add to my life is because the closer I get to them, the more of life I get from them. You know some of those relationships. You don't, if in an instance you pick up the phone to call them, whereas with the other ones you just have to schedule those ones. These ones you just call spontaneously. You just love spending time with them. Have many of those relationships in your life. Keep them, water them, make them flourish. And you know, a funny thing about some of those relationships, when I think about my own, is that where those relationships are now, initially, when I first encountered those people, I had a sense that those relationships would be like this now. You know why? There were certain things they did initially. Whether it was their advice or counsel to me, or whether they, the way they uniquely reacted to a certain situation, or maybe some acts of kindness or generosity made me say, ah, this person is somebody I want to get closer to because there may be more of where this is coming from. And so I took the plunge. I took the plunge into more intimacy, and guess what? I have never regretted it. I have never regretted it because my life has been so enriched. I have gotten life from them by being intimate with them. And believe me, it's the same way it works with God. Because if perfect, imperfect friends can give you life, what do you think a perfect God can give you? The same spirit that is speaking to the churches in verse 7 is the same spirit that will give you eternal life. God is saying, as more as you get close to me, my spirit is there to give you the life you need. How do I know that? He says, to the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat of the tree of life. Whenever we eat food, it's not just that we're eating. What is we're doing is that we're ingesting life. It's giving us more and more life. The Spirit is here to give you eternal life, the life that makes you flourish. Why must it be eternal life? It's because this world is like a wilderness. So, so many of the challenges that we face is like a wilderness. And so there are things to take life out of us. That's why many times we anticipate the future and we anticipate it with anxiety. That is why many times because of the things we do, we are doing our work, we like our work, but we are working with guilt because of the stuff that we've done. It's as though we're in a wilderness. That's why many times because of things that have happened to us at home, things that have happened to us with other people, it makes us unkind and irritable with the people that we work with. We feel we are living in a wilderness because inside our hearts is like a dry parched ground. We have no life to give. It's like a wilderness. 
And yet what God says is that the Holy Spirit is like pouring water upon dry ground. I love the prophet Isaiah on this. In Isaiah 44 verse 3, listen to what it says. I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. What is he talking about? He doesn't leave you to think too long. He says, I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. The spirit is there to give us life as we grow closer and closer to God. This is a relationship that doesn't take. This is a relationship that keeps giving and giving and giving. And he's giving us eternal life because in this life, you only have things that take from you. But remember what I said about my friends? I said that when I first experienced them in the initial stages, I saw foretaste of something that was in the future if I just became closer to them. And I want to tell you this, that the Holy Spirit, if you, if you, if you take that plunge, right, the Holy Spirit, what he's giving you now, as you eat of the tree of life, what he's giving you, what he can give you now, it's only but a foretaste of what is to come. The Bible says that he is a guarantee, a down payment of what is to come. As you are eating of the tree of life now, there is more of the tree of life to eat in the future. As the Spirit is poured on the dry ground that is thirsty, he doesn't just leave the dry ground wet, he eventually turns it into a fertile field. That's what Isaiah 32 verse 15 tells us. He says, still the Spirit is poured on us from on high and the desert becomes a fertile field and the fertile field seems like a forest. He transforms not just the outside world but inner, your inner life. He transformed a dry ground. He makes it wet but what is he doing? He's turning it into a garden. He's turning it into paradise and if we eat of the tree of life in paradise then life forevermore. Then the kind of enjoyment we've never seen. That is why he says I will give the right to of the one who is victorious the right to eat of the tree of life not just in the wilderness but in God's paradise I'm trying to tell you that if you grow in greater intimacy with God you will eat of the tree of life now but he promises you that this is a foretaste of what it is going to be in the future. Don't miss out on it now. Don't miss out on it in the future. It is the one who partakes of it now that is able to partake of it in the future. Come closer. Come and eat of this tree. Don't stay away. Don't justify yourself. Stop allowing the enemy to stop you from what is good. Stop partaking of the tree of death. What is the tree of death? The tree of death is all the destructive behaviors, all the things we do that God has told us not to do, the idolatry, the staying away from God, all of the things that then take life away from us. It is taken from the tree of death. And just as the tree of life, when you partake of the tree of death here, it is a foretaste of being eternally distant from God in the life to come. So how do I eat of this tree? Maybe I've never had a relationship with God. Maybe because you can't just eat of the tree. He says, I will give, there's a right. There's a right to eat of this tree. And the only thing that you have earned is the right to eat of the tree of death because of our sin. But here's the good news. Here's the good news. When Jesus came and lived the life we could not live, he eventually did die the death that we, we deserve to die. 
In other words, through Jesus' life, when he came down, God became man and he lived his life. He had earned the right to eat of the tree of life, but God gave him the tree of death. Why? So that you can have the right to eat of the tree of life. You don't earn the right, but the right is given to you by grace. Just as the life is given to you by grace, receive the grace of God. Jesus lost his intimacy so that with God so that you could gain yours. And now he's saying, come, come closer. I want you to remember from where you've fallen if you are a Christian. I want you to repent, whether you're a Christian or not. And I want you to reconnect because I have life to give to you. Draw closer to God. And if you're that person that wants to do that, can I ask you to pray with me? Because Jesus is here. The Spirit of God is here. And He's here to equip you. He's here to rejuvenate you. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to the Gospel in Lagos. We pray you've been blessed by this message. To learn more about City Church, visit www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church. Love Jesus. Love people. Love Lagos.